Welcome to the Berry Sex Show. Thanks for joining me. I'm Barry Cockroft and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We'll be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each podcast, including a transcript, the show notes and any links can be found at barrysax.com. Dr. Javier Valerio is widely recognised as one of the pioneers and leading classical saxophonists in Latin America. He was invited as a jury member of the 2014 Adolf Sax International Competition. He's a member of the International Saxophone Committee, founding president of the Alasax, the Latin American Saxophone Alliance, founding director of the SaxFest Costa Rica International, the Costa Rica International Saxophone Competition, and founder of the renowned saxophone and percussion quintet, Sonsax. After studying with the world-renowned saxophonist Eugene Rousseau at Indiana University School of Music, Valerio returned to his home country, Costa Rica, and established the saxophone studio where he's been teaching as a distinguished professor of the School of Music at the University of Costa Rica and worked as the director of the instrumental department. He obtained his master's degree in jazz studies at Florida International University and obtained a DMA degree from the University of Kansas, having the opportunity to perform at Carnegie Hall, New York with the KU Wing Ensemble in 2013. He has been invited to perform as a soloist with many orchestras and wind ensembles throughout Latin American countries, performing also in numerous occasions in the World Saxophone Congresses and North American Saxophone Alliance Conferences. He has travelled, offering recitals, clinics, masterclasses and concerts throughout the world and is a Selma Paris, Daddario Reeds and Russo Mouthpieces artist. Without further ado, please welcome my guest today, Dr. Javier Valerio. I guess I really wanted to know that if you weren't going to be a saxophone player, is it true you were going to be a dancer? Actually, I like dancing a lot. <laughs> you noticed. noticed. Okay. But that's just part of the of the culture. Part of your culture. Yeah. Like a lot of people dances all the time. Yeah. So why I dance was I told you yesterday that my mother has many brothers and sisters. So she was number 10. So I remember uh, when we have uh, some trips with the family or we have any like Sunday mornings, we used to go to a picnic or something like that. They always music. So I remember two of my aunts always taking me and probably they were heard some music, bolero, salsa or something like that. So they just grab me and start teaching me how to dance and like that. And is it like that? I mean, the, the kids in Costa Rica, they grow up with music and dances. Yeah, I mean, it's like basically, you know, you, you have and there's like a, a lot of activities that go along with music and dancing. So you kind of like, it's not like a, nothing formal that, you know, that yeah. you go, but you know, like, like this, you know, I was in playing soccer with my friends and with my, actually my cousins and, and suddenly this aunt called me, hey, Valerio, come. And I was like, what, what? And suddenly she grabbed me, okay, let's dance. It's like, so. Is it everywhere I've been with you at any chance if there's music? Yeah. And usually some drinks involved. Uh, <laughs> you're always dancing. <laughs> yeah. And also when I was, uh, 
a teenager, you know, I had a a really nice um, group of classmates that liked to dance too. Also, I was in a conservatory, and and uh, they we have uh, besides painters and like you know musicians, we have dancers, and so we used to have a lot of parties and dance a lot. So usually that's that's how I I I. I started learning even more and more steps and things like that. And I also like music a lot, so <laughs> that's well. why. Yeah, so, but, you know, I really like uh, dances, as you said. I don't know if I will be a professional <laughs> but uh, that was one of the things that I noticed uh, when I go to a place, you know, if I want to hear some music and something. And also when you play saxophone, you know, especially down there with, like, salsa bands and stuff like that, or you play some music, you know. Sometimes you cannot ignore the dancing part, you know, sure. because that's part of the music. I did notice with Sonsex, you group that everyone's moving all the time. Yeah, the reason is because when we started 21 years ago, we were playing, you know, like the standards, like classical repertoire and some of the jazz repertoire. And uh, it wasn't until we, in 1986, we were in, um, in, um, in Chicago, I think. And uh, we, the proposal at that time was to play our music. And we were playing like, you know, with a coat and with Stan seated on the, the chair <laughs> when we were rehearsing. But, you know, we were playing all those Latin tunes and stuff like that. And, you know, as you know, I, I like to dance and, and I couldn't play that music, just sit it. I said, no, no, no way. No, we need to stand up. <laughs> so we stood up and then suddenly I said, no, you know, you got to really like play this moving because that's part of the, I, I felt at that time that was incomplete yeah. if I didn't do it. You know, if you were playing some salsa and something like that, so you move, you do some steps because that kind of also portrays what you're feeling and what the music is. And when sometimes when you play with salsa bands or like Latino bands, you, you you will see the whole group, you know, 16, 18 people like doing a step and dance and move. And, and it's really nice because after that, you know, you you kind of like, like if let's say you play have to play a gig of three or four hours. So, you know, it's not the same thing if you're just standing very straight and very bored playing than if you're just feeling the music and enjoying it. So when you see like a more traditional sax quartet and people are sitting there with the music stands and their jackets, do you find that a bit stiff? Not if the music, it depends on the music. Mm, okay. Yeah, you know, you don't want to be playing glass enough, you know, like shaking your hands or something like that. <laughs> no, I, I don't, I, I'm not at all. I mean, it's just like, it depends on the music, you know, if people just play, but you don't move at all. I mean, it's, it's okay as long as they feel comfortable. But when you're with a group of people like Sonsax, you know, and you you hear the bass line, you know, doing something, something like that, and the guy, you know, just feeling it, you're moving, you know, you kind of like get along with the, yeah. with the steps. Sometimes we move and we didn't notice, and sometimes we just move at the same time with the same steps because right. it's just part of the of the yeah. pattern that we use. So how did you actually get started in on saxophone as a kid? As a kid. You know, my dad um, played saxophone as a hobby, but my dad wasn't a saxophonist, you know. He he worked in different stuffs. But I, I remember every year for the Holy Week, that was the main week of the year, he played with a small group 
in the church, the you know, in the processions. So there's always music, you know, so in Italy, Spain, they always have like what they call the Philharmonia, mm-hmm. you know, it's a small group. Uh, at that time, we're or like older musicians from the town. So I saw him since I was a kid playing in those things. And I used to go next to him playing, you know, walking on the procession all the time. <laughs> and um, later when I was in the, in the, uh, at the primary school, there was a music teacher and uh, his name was Gonzalo Arce. And he was a, a very well, very, very, very good uh, teacher. You know, he encouraged us a lot and we just loved music the way he was teaching it. And I had a, a recorder and an accordion and, and he just gave me stuff and I learned very fast. So he told my, my mom and my dad that you know, I, I should consider um, playing. And also when I was like in fifth grade, they sent me to, they thought that it was a good idea to go to a special school in Costa Rica, which is a conservatory. That's the one I told you. And um, so I did, uh, I prepared myself with him and, you know, learned how to read music and all that kind of stuff. And when I, I entered the conservatory, they asked me what kind of instrument I wanted to play. And I said, oh, saxophone. Because, you know, I, 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 I learned and I saw it and I enjoyed it when my dad was playing it. So that's why I, I started uh, with the saxophone. Like wow. That. Yeah. So going as a kid in Costa Rica to studying with Dr. Rousseau in America, that's a big step. Well, the thing is, it's funny because... And I think every country has the same story in a different times. But I I was in the conservatory and basically we were just influenced by, you know, like all the, the popular music, the Latino music and, and a lot of the jazz that was happening in the, in the 80s. And there's a, like funk, soul and all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, I also had some good friends, a clarinet player, trumpet player, who were like very serious into studying music. Mm -hmm. Because in that conservatory, you know, once you finish, it's like, it goes until, it's like a high school level. So once you go to 12th grade, you know, probably you you don't continue music or painting or the arts, you just become a lawyer or whatever. But there is also, in every generation, like a group that thinks very seriously. To continue as artists, like musicians and dancers, and I was part of those, that group with those guys. So, those guys were really into classical music, okay, and uh, and for some reason I was playing in there with with uh, with the concert band and things like that, and I started doing something that the other saxophone players were not doing, which just was uh, getting more interested in this classical music, in the classical saxophone, and. Um, there was another, uh, besides the conservatory music, uh, not the, 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 it's called the Castella Conservatory Music. The, there is the, 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 what the National Symphony Orchestra had a youth program, which is called now the National Institute of Music, but at the time it was called the Sinfonica Juvenil, was a place where, um, like the orchestra used to have a lot of students who eventually will become like part of the musicians of the National Symphony. So, um, what I did was uh, starting 
to get like really a lot of um, music. But one of the things that I think that um, that make the, the, this is my my day, my point of how I decided to to study classical saxophone was that I had a friend who gave me a, a tape. <laughs> he gave me a tape uh, with some uh, classical concertos played by this guy, but he did he didn't really know who he was. So I got the tape. And uh, I started listening, and I heard, you know, Glasnost and the Villalobos and all those concertos, and I was like, wow! And I never heard that sound the way, you know, I was really interested in what I was hearing. And you know, at the beginning, I thought, you know, the guy was that was playing was Ebert, you know, something like that, <laughs> because you know, he just wrote the the names uh, with a with a pencil, <laughs> and the and I didn't really know what it was. And it was later that I discovered that the saxophone player was called Rousseau, Dr. Rousseau. But it was uh, through that tape that I listened and listened and listened, and I started hearing a lot of the stops, and I, I kind of like imitated the sound, and, <laughs> and I was able to to get all the music, like at the glass of concerto. I remember writing letters to Alphonse Leduc at that time, and, and I was able to start buying, which is it was really, really hard at that time, especially from Costa Rica, Writing to friends and coming back, it was it took long like mm-hmm. weeks so you can get the stuff. So at that time, I started like getting a little more and more serious about the 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 classical saxophone. And uh, there was another American professor there, a conductor that played with uh, Chicago Symphony many years ago, who was working with the uh, Organization of American States in programs in Latin America, and he happened to be there. He was a very close friend uh, of Hemke, mm. too. So it was through him that I learned, because he was conducting the, the wind ensemble, I learned a lot more about how to play the classical saxophone at that time. And um, later, uh, there were uh, some students from the United States, because we had the North American Cultural Center who finally brought some musicians. Every year they had like flute players. And there was for the first time ever a saxophone player who who was there. And I was able to to kind of t- t- test what I was doing with a real uh, student from the United States. And that's when I got really serious about, okay, I was like around 19 years old at that time. I was very serious about going to the United States to study because uh, most of the saxophone players in Costa Rica at that time were just like learning, but there wasn't anybody with a degree in saxophone. I mean, they were like usually the same story, a clarinet player who plays saxophone in the bands, even though we have uh, like the music institute uh, that is what is called the, the Ministry of Culture. Costa Rica doesn't have an army. Okay, but before the army, before the army was was abolished, every like city had a, like a like a military band. Once the the army was abolished, the bands became national bands, and they became a very important part of the culture of Costa Rica. And every band had saxophone players, but you know mostly clarinet players who became saxophone players. But uh, later, I decided, no, I really want to go and study abroad. 
and learn how to play saxophone the way you know it should be and get a degree and come back to Costa Rica so I can start teaching and, and so I nobody who wants to study saxophone doesn't have to go through what I what I did you know that didn't have any any books any methods and music and anything so uh, it was uh, in my in my head I always oh I wish I could study with Dr. Rousseau but you know at that time you know uh, I didn't really know how and how, you know. So back in the 89, 90, there was a, an option. Uh, the Agency for International Development of the United States was uh, given some scholarships in, in the country uh, for anything. I mean, engineering, uh, uh, any, any, any career that you want. And so I apply. There were like I don't know how many, maybe like ten thousand applications or something, and and I and I apply, I apply, and I was chosen in the last uh, fifty, uh, and I was the only musician in that, and so at that time in nineteen ninety there were uh, fifty people to, who got the scholarship. It was uh, a scholarship to go and do a degree in the United States, um, and I I won I won the, the scholarship. And at that time, I had already made contact with Donald Sinta because one of the students uh, who was in that uh, um, like uh, season of students that come to Costa Rica, there was a guy called Charles Young, composer and saxophone player at that time, who studied with Donald Sinta. He brought him a tape about of the things that I was playing. And he was very impressed because, you know, it's the guy from Central America playing all this uh, classical saxophone. So he got very interested. And also uh, I talked to Donald and you know, Hemke, who are, knew that about me because of Jared Brown, the, the conductor. And also, um, uh, of course, Dr. Rousseau in Indiana. But uh, the, the, it was a funny thing because... At that time, I had more chance to go to Michigan to study with Donald Sinta. And, but um, at that time, I didn't speak English. I didn't know anything. So fortunately, the scholarship gave us some time to learn English, pass the TOEFL test, and be able to apply to the university. So I went through all that process in the United States. You know, they just took us there, put it in the middle of Washington, D.C., and that's how we started. So... Um, once we, I passed the TOEFL test and I passed all the process, you know, the scholarship had some limits about budget for scholar, for schools. So at that time, for some reason, Michigan was, wasn't an option because it was more expensive than what the scholarship had covered for me. So I ended up uh, being in Indiana. I was accepted at Indiana University. But at that time, I had not met or auditioned for Dr. Rousseau because they put me more like in a music education program, kind of like. And uh, I finished that, um, that process with the English. I passed the TOEFL test. Oh, finally, I was accepted to Indiana. Meanwhile, I was in a school 
uh, English, like a university in, in Florida called Jacksonville University. I was there just English. But when I was there, one of the reasons I learned English a little bit faster was because I got involved with the School of Music, even though I, I, I didn't have to be there. So I went and I knocked, and I, even though I didn't speak English, <laughs> Spanish, I just, eh, English, I, I went there and I, and, and I ended up playing there with a big band, with the concert band and the concerts and stuff like that. So I was very active with a lot of teachers and saxophone players now in the United States. So once I got to Indiana, I was walking down the hall in one of the school in the, the buildings and I saw this guy finally, you know, this doctor or so who was in a trip the, and stopped by there for vacation because he was in sabbatical at that time. So that was uh, uh, a really nice thing because I kind of went to talk to him and say, hi, I'm from Costa Rica. And they came and like, oh yeah. Oh, you're going to be a student here? Yes. And he said, uh, what do you play, saxophone? And he asked me, oh, okay, I'll be back for the fall when the school starts. So um, I talked to him and he um, asked me um, if, we, if I wanted to play something. And even though the first semester uh, I wasn't uh, part of the saxophone studio, I was able to do a audition right there like the first week for him and that's how you know once he heard me i played the dubois concerto for him the cadence and all that 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 you know he was very impressed that even though i didn't have teachers before like you know like anybody with a degree with class he was very impressed that i i learned how to play that with the vibrato with the sound and and he asked me how and i said well you know i got your tape <laughs> a long time ago <laughs> And he was like very impressed that, that, I, that, I, that I was able to, to get to a level of performing with, with just listening to his tape. So that's part of the, the, the big step that I, for me, just coming from nothing from Costa Rica and going uh, directly to, to, to there. You know? So I don't know uh, at that time, but you know, I just uh, felt that... Uh, for me, it was a very important decision to go to Indiana University and study with Dr. Rousseau because I was more familiar to what I learned through the tape and to all the recordings that I had. Because I don't know um, how my life would have been if I went to Michigan, for example. You know, so it's just part of the destiny, mm. how, how you kind of like start like, like, finding paths in your life that suddenly gets you to a point where you didn't really realize how you got there, but you were there. <laughs> so do you think you had a plan through all of that time or it was really one thing leading to another? Like I think uh, I had a, uh, more like a, like a, it was more like, a, yeah, like events that they were connecting, you know, like I met this person and I found this tape and, and I talked to this person that brought me to another thing, another thing, another thing, another thing until I got there. Because let's say that, for example, uh, the scholarship covered like the the amount of money they needed for Michigan, for example. You know, I probably ended up in Michigan and not in Indiana. But I think that there was something that you know was already planned there. That you know, I, I, my plan was to go there. So being there was uh, also good because I was able to meet all those people, you know, and students and uh, playing in a win ensemble with great conductors like like uh, Kramer, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just like um, this kind of thing in your life that you probably have a dream about something. But I, I, I sometimes think that you don't really need to follow your dreams. You just need to follow your efforts. Mm. And that's going to lead you to places where, where you want to go. So, you know, like, because later, you know, being there as a saxophone player, a student of Indiana University, and start going to saxophone symposiums and congresses. It was really hard sometimes because, oh, where are you from? Costa Rica. Oh, really? Oh, my God. <laughs> People look at you and, oh, okay. And, and later when they asked me, and who was, who is your teacher? I said, Dr. Son. Oh, really? So they come to you and I ask you, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was really weird also um, at that time in the 80s. I, actually, I was one of the, the first Latinos that Dr. So taught. I think I was the only one. There was later another one, in, I think, in Michigan. No, in Minnesota, mm-hmm. a guy from Puerto Rico. But uh, I told him, like, many years later, you know, I'm the only Latino that you have taught. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting. You've approached classical saxophone almost like a jazz musician where you've learned classical saxophone essentially by ear. Yeah. And you've come around in the reverse direction of a lot of people. Yeah. Have you found other people who have learnt in a similar way? When I was in Indiana, like in 1991 or 92, I remember that Dr. Rousseau one day when I was teaching, he was teaching me a a lesson. Um, He said, oh, I want you to go out and talk to this student that just came from Hong Kong. And uh, I didn't really know because it was like the first, second week. And it was Kenneth Che. <laughs> and I, I told Kenneth later, you know, uh, Dr. So want us to talk. And so Kenneth and I went to drink something that day or eat something. And he was telling me about the tape <laughs> story too. <laughs> the same it, story. The same story, yeah. But it's funny, but he had the same experience in Hong Kong. And I had the same experience in Costa Rica. So the reason why doctors also want to be together wanted us to to talk to each other was to share the same story you know for him it was uh, very impressive that uh, that uh that i we we as musicians in different countries in different parts of the world you know got the same kind of like the same kind of story wow yeah so i i i later when i talked to kenneth he was telling me that that was how he learned about classical saxophone too you know through through that and um later we we <clears throat> we got um like more recordings and stuff like that i remember but i think that uh, one of the the clear examples that i have of somebody who learned in a similar way that i do about classical saxophone was with kenneth and the the funny story is just we got a tape <laughs> <laughs> it was in the the LP, you know. Yeah, yeah it was a, just a, a recording that, that that we got at that time. So, as a student, did you learn new technical routines that you perhaps hadn't known before going to the states? One of the things I liked when I was in Indiana was that, besides Doctor So, he was uh, able to, you know, at that time he was doing a lot of concert planes and stuff. I mean, it was, was one other time that we, he was playing all over the world. So we gave a chance to, to also study with other teachers that he invited. So I, I studied with um, Ivonne Roth from Switzerland, uh, Ishii Shiwata from 
Japan. Jean Lansing, who was one of the first uh, women to play in a saxophone quartet with him. And a guy from India, Trippi Paul, that was teaching. So I got all this also uh, saxophone prayer from different perspectives that came and, and taught. And um, I think that the, 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 one of the, the routines or things that, that I learned very well when I was with Dr. So <clears throat> was about the sound concept. So how to start with the mouthpiece and how to sometimes, you know, try to polish your, your tongue in, your sound, your articulation, uh, practicing with, with your mouthpiece first. And, um, how later, you know, you can, uh, adjust that to, to the soprano, to the alto, to the berry. And, uh, and especially how to use your airstream, your column and all that. Through that, so that's one of the basic, you know, routines that I I really like, especially at that time, you know, that I really oh that's because I was just doing it, but I didn't really know how. But once, once you know, you tell you, you know, you can also practice with your mouthpiece and you know, the long notes, and you can practice the vibrato through the mouthpiece first, you know, and after you do it with your horn. That was one of the things that I that I was like oh okay, so this is something that you know. Is kind of like improving more what you actually do, can do just with a whole horn set. Do you find that you practice different things now to when you were learning as a student? I keep some elements, but you know, as a saxophone player from Latin America, especially from Costa Rica and Central America, we get a lot of influence of music from all over the world. So we get from North America, we get music from South America, from the Caribbean, from Europe. So, um, I just play, I mean, I cannot just play classical music. I have to play other things. So I have to play salsa. I have to play merengue. I have to play classical. I have to play jazz. I have to play rock. I have to play all these different styles. So sometimes, you know, I, I learned that, you know, I cannot just practice one way because it depends on what, what I need to do. You know, I need to, so. I keep the like the basics. What I said, you know, about the the the, the way I practice sometimes, um, like articulation things like that. But it depends on what I have to play. That I, it'll it'll vary the way of, of of playing. So you know, if I have to play, you know, I played many times with a uh, some Latin rock groups that you know were nominated for Grammys and stuff like that. So I needed to play with a harder you know mouthpiece and brighter sound things like that. So I think that um, that I kind of like change the way I practice depending on what I have to do. And I think that now with all the technology that you have, I have uh, made variations of what I did, like let's say in the, in the 90s, you know, like a lot of stuff. Sometimes, you know, I, I you know, I use uh, some of the, like, like if I have to practice, Something like this, for for example, uh, if I have to play or I have to teach something related to, like for example, the scar skirmish in the first moment. So I go through YouTube and I found like a really nice salsa, you know, a samba rhythm, <laughs> bass, like like a like a loop. So you know that in the night it wasn't possible. You know I just needed to have that musicians with me. <laughs> but you know sometimes I, I get like you know I use the technology. You know so I can feel like 
because that's a shuttle, you know, things like that. So I think that I have incorporated like things that sometimes don't distract me from the like the practicing because of technology, you know, once you start getting YouTube, you get Facebook and you start watching <laughs> the news and suddenly you don't practice. But I, but I do have some things now that I, that I use, you know, um, you know, later, I remember in Indiana, the, that was one of the biggest universities at that time. So they, we, you were able at that time to be in the library where you actually have the music parts with the recordings and everything. For me, that was like a, pressure you know it was like wow you know that i couldn't do that in costa rica at all at that time but now you know you have it in the phone so you have everything there and you have different uh, versions of different quartets or like different concerto that you're going to play and you have the music uh, so sometimes now you know the way you prepare your practicing routine you know it kind of changes because you know you got more material more uh things available so do you ever find yourself unable to cope with the technology that's around is it too distracting now yeah i mean if you let yourself um, get distracted you're gonna get because it's very easy i mean it's very <laughs> easy i mean if you like one of the first things that i do when i practice and that's what i tell my students just turn out the phone and the excuse is okay, but uh, I have my metronome, my tuner, and everything on the phone. <laughs> so I say, okay, so put it in airplane mode, yeah. because it's very distracting now with the like the social media. If you have a phone in your stand and you you keep communicating with the world, immediately you start getting like an email or like a text or something, and and it just the distraction is going to be terrible. I heard that every message you get, it takes something like six or seven minutes to refocus your concentration back to what you were doing. Mm -hmm. Imagine we probably get more than one message oh, yeah. every six minutes. Especially so. jokes. <laughs> In Costa Rica, like we have a lot of chats, you know, and, you know, people like to send jokes all over, all the time, <laughs> memes, you know, all the time. So once you start reading a joke, you want to send that joke to your other chat, your friends and stuff. So by the time you know, it's 10 minutes you spent. You were in America for 12 years, right? Yeah. That's a in long different time. Parts, different parts. Yeah. Different times. Yeah. So all of that knowledge you've taken back to Costa Rica, I mean, considering that you were saying you were really the only classical saxophonist, now you have a teaching position at a university and students and other teachers. I mean, the country has changed enormously since... Yeah, that was in 1994 that I, I, I finished, I got my degree and I went back. Um, it's funny because the University of Costa Rica, which is uh, it's the main university in Latin America, they had a saxophone position, but they, they, they opened it in the, in the 80s, but they didn't have a teacher. <laughs> and the reason it was open was because there was a, a guy who played on the on the... San Jose National Band. His name is Donald Calderon. He was a clarinet player, but also played saxophone very seriously. And <clears throat> he was the first guy who was able to play the Iber Concerto in the National Theater at that time because it was a composer that came from a Costa Rican composer that was working with uh, with um, actually um, 
he was in France and also in the United States, Isma, Isma School of Music. Um, and he was able to interact with saxophone players when he was in France. So he came back to Costa Rica back in the 70s and told this saxophone player, oh, there is a concerto, da, 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 da. And he, they did it once. It was a little kid when that happened. And that was the first time that this guy was able to play the instrument in a way that people didn't hear before. But um, it's funny because at that time at the conservatory music, saxophone wasn't allowed to be played. So you could go there and you can play it. But you couldn't play saxophone because <laughs> saxophone was for 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 Latin dance or for popular music. It wasn't a serious instrument, what they call. So I was very fortunate that when I got there at the university, they have a position, but it wasn't a full time position. It was just like five hours of uh, teaching uh, professor uh, hours what they have. So at that time, you know, I was. Um, I was working for the first time with the Heredia National Band. I was part of that system. And I started teaching. I got a lot of, uh, I got students at that time, but, you know, they didn't really understand the concept that, you know, that I was going to be able to start teaching. And so I, I started with the University of Costa Rica, and there was another position also at the National uh, Symphony Orchestra. So I was playing with the National Symphony Orchestra when they have like a repertoire with saxophone. And that gave me the option also to start teaching there at the Youth National Symphony Program, where I have a saxophone studio too. And I was teaching at the <laughs> university a little bit. So later, you know, they saw what I was doing. I started with doing a saxophone quartet and students playing out repertoire with piano and things like that. So I start little by little. So from five hours, I went to a quarter time, later a half time. And through the years, I was able to finally have like a full time position at the university and start uh, graduating students. Later, I got one of my first students who graduated being able to get a position at the university with also like a half-time, <laughs> part-time job there. And through that, I started also like in 1996 with other students, uh, a group that now is called Sonsax, but at, at that time, you know, it was just uh, a part of the, of the process, you know. And uh, yeah, and through the years, I was able to... to to graduate like generations of students who became teachers and they were able to start spreading around the country and kind of like start um, creating different like the different school you know that that, that I heard in my head <laughs> many years later um, and since there you know we have had now like a lot of students who graduated who uh, now teach at the country or other other ones have gone through to do uh, degrees outside, like we have, like we're kind of exporting students. Right? So <laughs> then we have students in the states, in Europe. Some have gone to Latin America, and they're like, like doing their stuff. They're recording. They're doing all these things. But it was, it was really hard at the beginning. I mean, it wasn't like everybody was expecting me. Oh, Valerio, you came. We were waiting for you, saxophone. You know, at that time. Uh, People, especially like the clarinet players, the teacher, the professor, the flute players, you know, they didn't take me very serious because, you know, <laughs> saxophone was just for like having fun and playing just merengue and salsa. 
but it, once they start hearing the repertoire and, and I was able to like demonstrate you know, how you can play. And this is the similar story that some people had in Europe in the States at the beginning when they started too. So people got a little more credibility in what we were doing. They take, take us very seriously. Like the saxophone ensemble, for example, in the University of Costa Rica, last year uh, was the 20th anniversary. Is, and it has been one of the more consistent groups at the university. And like, you know, some people like in other instruments haven't been able to do it, but we have kept it for 20 years already. And we just don't play in Costa Rica. We have been able to go to festivals and stuff like that. So they are like, oh my God, you know, we are, we are able now to have like all the saxophone sets from the sopraninos to the uh, bass saxophone set. So. Um, it took a, a long process, but at that time, you know, it was really nice also that I got students who were able to continue the, 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 like the, the idea that I was having. So in 2000, once we got some sax, once we get students who were doing other things, we came to a place where we noticed that the country was ready to have a festival, you know. That's one of the things that I told Dr. Russo many years. Oh, you know, that will be nice to have a festival. In. But I, I, rem I think that if I got there in 1994, but in, I wanted to do a festival like in 98, I didn't really have the, the, the people in the country wasn't ready to have that. So it was like in 2007 that I started doing the SACFest Costa Rica International, who's been down for 11 years. And, uh, that's how I started to, create like different opportunities for a lot of students also, you know, to be able to perform and see other international uh, saxophonists who came and were giving concerts, master classes and all that stuff. And through that, you know, that was the plan to do another dream that I had a long time ago <laughs> that was uh, to do the Latin American Saxophone Alliance. Because when I was in the 90s in the United States, I I was introduced to the North American Saxophone Alliance and, you know, being with Dr. Russo, he told me about the experience he had with creating that with other colleagues and at that time and also with the, the World Saxophone Congress and how. So I got, you know, very involved with that. And um, back in 92, I was thinking about doing that at one point. But we kind of needed, you know, how to, we needed to know who was teaching where, you know, even though um, we knew there, there were some saxophone players in different Latin American countries, we didn't really know. And I think that we needed to wait until internet was invented. <laughs> <laughs> because once uh, we got internet and we were able to have email, that's how we, uh, as Latin American teachers, start like, contacting each other. So suddenly I got an email uh, from Mexico and and I found out there was somebody in Guatemala and in, in Colombia and like that. So like in, uh, I think that after, two, uh, after 2007, I was able to start making contacts to main teachers in different places and start like, you know, getting alone. So it was until 2012 that, uh, we were able to do the like the first congress of the Latin American Saxophone Alliance, and it was in Costa Rica. Uh, so we hosted, and the idea was to start um, putting together 
like every experience that all those guys had and it's the same kind of story that mm -hmm. that i that i was told you about how they started like they have similar stories about the clarinet player who played saxophone who was the teacher and but nobody had the music and and through all these years you know have, we have been able to 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 use our own festivals as a platform to host the congress so we, we already did four congresses now we we started with costa rica went to the main uh, another con uh, another congress in mexico no it was costa rica first brazil mexico and we just did it in colombia so if you think back in the 90s to do that it was impossible i mean nobody understood you know what it was but it, that was like part of the plan that I kind of start doing by contacting all these teachers. And one of the main goals that as an, an alliance that we had at the beginning was to kind of like learn about each other and learn who we are because we didn't really know. So we're still in that process, you know, every time now there are like more festivals in every different country that, that we're going to to participate and know what they're doing and stuff, things like that. But uh, it's been like, you know, since I came back in 94, like a little bit of things that are connecting, connecting, connecting. One of the reasons we were able to communicate with, uh, with the Mexican teachers and students at that time was because of, um, a student who graduated with me, called her Sofia Zumbado, he met somebody and he ended up, she ended up being in Mexico. And she, uh, that's how, you know, we got the connection because she was playing saxophone and went to audition to Mexico. And the guys from Mexico didn't know there was a saxophone school in Costa Rica uh, like that. And so that's how we, you know, got a, a series of events where we start connecting people and, and experiences. And suddenly this is what we got from all that. Your group Sonsax has been playing for more than 20 years now. Mm -hmm. You've been traveling all around the world. How do you balance travel and you've got a young family, I know. How do you balance those things, your, your musical career and also your, your job at home and your family at home? Yeah, well, the, the, one of the things that led me, I think, um, do what I do is just to have a, a wonderful wife <laughs> <laughs> that supports you and, and also under, understands what you do. Because I had friends who haven't been able to go through what they want to do because, you know, sometimes they don't get the support and that becomes a problem, you know. But once you got a, a, a like the, the type of wife I have where, where, you know, I told her, you know, I got an opportunity now to do a master's degree in the States, so let's go. And she's like, okay, okay let's go. <laughs> she, even though she was a lawyer, you know, she left everything and said, okay, let's go. You know, I go with you and... And support you so i think that that's one of the main um bases that i have you know that, that the person i'm sharing my life with understands and enjoy what i do so um <clears throat> another thing that uh that i find that has been very flexible is that the university of costa rica is uh, um, also their their view is to have teachers who are active and participating and traveling than having just somebody in the classroom. So that's one of the things that I, that I, 
I think it's uh, very important, especially at the, the school of music. It is, uh, they actually encourage you to, to be out and to participate and they support you in that aspect. So it's not like, oh no, you have to teach and you have to be here because no. So as long as you um, teach to your students, even before and after you kind of like catch up with your, you know, they, they are okay because they want, uh, actually they, the, the, the idea is that everything that I do outside or uh, I learning outside, that's something that's going to benefit students too. So the university uh, has that philosophy, you know, just that that's not a problem. If you have to go out, actually it's good for the university that you're out because that means that you are working and doing being a lot of active stuff. And, um, <clears throat> and um, the other thing is just that uh, that uh, I I try to kind of organize uh, my schedules in a way that you know for me family is the most important thing so for the family is first and so I try to un understand you know where are the the most important parts where I can interact with my my two girls and my wife and based on that. You know, I put my practicing hours, you know, depending on where, if they're at school, so I can practice here. If they're doing some activities, I can practice at different hours of the day. And also with the same way when, when I teach, you know, I try to find different spots so where I can have some spaces. So sometimes I, I teach like two or three students, so I give some space to go drink coffee, eat lunch, and after practice and after keep uh, playing and with the rehearsals too. So I try to do it, and when I travel, uh, I like and I do it. I, I the, the way I do it is just like, like for example, now uh, I have a uh, like if I have a, a trip, I contact my student before, and I say, okay, I'm gonna be out this week. So I try to teach their lessons before I leave. So. I, I can organize with them, you know, the repertoire and everything. So by the time I come back, they already know what they have to do. I, I usually don't like to to catch up with the students after I come back because I'm tired. <laughs> so it's better for me just to, to do it before. So, and they feel more comfortable because even though I'm, a, I'm away, you know, they, they know what they, they do. And another thing that, uh, that I do now that I wasn't able to do before is that sometimes when I'm traveling, uh, if a student has a question or something, they just send me a, a text or I call them and we talk. And even sometimes I get samples. Oh, listen, I, I, I was practicing this like that. And they send me a little audio <laughs> and, and I tell them, oh, do this or do this or, or try to practice this. So this weekend you're performing as a soloist in Slovenia. Mm -hmm. Could you perhaps tell me how you have prepared yourself for that performance? Well, I... I'm playing a piece that I have never played and I have two weeks to learn it. And um, so what I did is last Monday, because I was traveling with my, my family as I, I was uh, vacationing, so I didn't have much time to practice because <laughs> I was uh, at the beach and traveling. And, and so I, when I travel, sometimes I, at least I take my mouthpiece so I can do some long notes and stuff like that. In this trip specifically, I couldn't bring my saxophone because I had six suitcases and I didn't have any time to. So I was playing 
uh, with a saxophone that a friend of mine gave me in Mexico because I was in a house, so I was able to get the horn once in a while. But um, <clears throat> for for this, you know, I try to to get in the mornings like at least two hours of practicing. So the first two hours, you know, what I did was just a little bit of warming up and stuff like that, and I just went through some uh, uh, slow passages through the piece because this piece has a lot of jumps, you know, like a lot of jumps and jumps in there, and it has some altissimo notes too. So I try to 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 kind of recognize the piece, you know, from the beginning to the end, and do like a little scanning of what what I needed to do. And uh, I, since I was on vacation in this in the last two weeks, I was able to at least do two hours, have a little break, go walk, and do some exercise. Come back, eat lunch, in the afternoon I practice like at least two more hours or three more hours, and I was able to like get ready with some of the passages that I thought you know <clears throat> they're a little more com- comfortable, and I also. Specifically for this one, there are some altissimo with big jumps, so I really needed to be very sure what kind of altissimo position I was gonna, the fingering I was gonna use. So I I had to take some time to start writing down, just to memorize uh, how I'm gonna be using the fingering like that. So I think that I had like a really comfortable. Uh, session of practicing hours during the whole two weeks that I was able. Usually it doesn't happen like that because I will be working or something, but since I was on vacation, specifically for this week, I was able to have like a regular schedule every day, like I woke up, eat breakfast with my kids, they went to school, so I was able to find like like a morning, afternoon um, practicing time, and which is really good <laughs> usually you know you will have to find other times <clears throat> i even went to the beach uh during the the weekend before i came here so we went to the beach and later you know i uh i told them okay i'll i'll be back so i went there practiced half an, an hour and a half and went back to the beach so that's that's how you know i was able to to kind of like you know learn the piece in two weeks in a way that you know, I feel comfortable now with what I'm doing. I just need to check some stuff, but and this is gonna be the first time I'm playing that with ensemble, so we'll see. It is funny that a saxophone player's holiday involves practicing all the time. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. hardly a holiday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that yeah, if you don't do it, it's like uh, anybody who does exercise. You know, you you your shape doesn't get better. <laughs> So I think that's that's the way, but uh, I think one of the beautiful things about this um, this uh, profession, what we call, is just you know like always you like to do music. So in a way, like this year, I have to learn uh, like three new uh, concertos that they're they have been written for myself. So I'm playing a, a one uh, with the National Symphony Orchestra um, in June. The, actually, it's a guy who just got a Grammy from for 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 um, one of his compositions that was, uh, um, and he wrote me a concerto, and I have another concerto for wind ensemble that I'm gonna perform in Japan, no, in Japan, no, in Hong Kong with the symposium, 
And I have uh, <clears throat> another concerto with sound sax. We're playing with the National Symphony for saxophone quartet. And 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 so I, I since now uh, I, I'm kind of like scheduling how I'm going to be learning all these different concertos because I have all the repertoire besides the the these new pieces that I have to perform and play in other festivals I'm going to be going. Plus, you know, the music that I have to teach uh, with the students, you know. So I, I, I have a lot of students graduated this year doing recitals, and some of them are playing, playing new music, too, that they have been commissioning. So I have to take some time to look at the piece and, and see what I'm going to be able to tell them, you know. <laughs> so I need to practice the music they also play. Is working with composers an important part of what you do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a very good friend of composers. I mean, I have a lot of composers. Actually, um, that one that I told you that uh, just got a Grammy, got together with another composer who just got a Grammy too, as a conductor <laughs> and composer. So I think, and it's funny because in 1990, in 88, 89, this composer, Carlos Castro, who was uh, um, a little bit, closer to my generation at that time. I, I was the first who commissioned him a saxophone piece. Um, and since then, you know, he got very interested in composing for saxophone. So through the years, you know, this is a person that's always doing like a sonata and a concerto. And through him and two other more composers, we got like a generation of teachers who actually take um, uh, saxophone compositions really seriously. So when they teach uh, uh, composition in their classes, usually I got students in my room asking me, oh, I'm writing a saxophone concerto, and do you think your students can, you know, try them? So usually I have uh, a lot of music written for saxophone, and uh, my students are able to sometimes include that music in their recitals. And uh, also some of my students sometimes getting interested, and so they compose their own uh, like pieces and stuff like that. But yeah, especially like there's a, a big um, new generation composers who are doing a lot of new stuff. And uh, I always get really close to composers mm -hmm. because otherwise you just gonna get stuck with the same music all the time. So you need to evolve, you know, you need to get new stuff. And is improvising a big part of what you do? Yeah. Do you do that? In your own time with son sax, I mean, where does it fit in? Yeah, you know, like some of the repertoire we play includes improvisation. So you really need to 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 include it, and I do that in my classes too, because even though I teach uh, I teach at the school of music uh, saxophone, um, my classes have to include not just classical saxophone. So I have to teach them how to play merengue because eventually, you know, in a place like that, you know, they will call a, a, a saxophonist, no, a classical saxophone. They will call the saxophone. So sometimes, you know, I, my students, you know, they can be play a concerto with a, with a wind ensemble because we have many wind ensembles around the country. But at the same time, that might include a repertoire that, you know, ask you to play some Latino stuff or thing. And they cannot say, oh no, I just play sax classical saxophone. So part of the, of the classes that I have to teach, you know, I get sometimes, and we got CDs and we got uh, 
I mean, books were how you play the merengue. I mean, it's like exactly like if you're playing classical, but, you know, so I have to sit with them, you know, how to like do slow stuff and how to play the second voice or the tenor. And merengue usually is two voices. And sometimes when you play uh, salsa, you know, you have to learn about the clave and all the stuff. So uh, as a... As a, as a teacher, has to be, I have I have to be able not just to communicate the knowledge through the classical saxophone, the sound, the, how to use the vibrato and all that kind of stuff, but also I have to learn, I have to teach that kind of stuff, which is very important because once they graduate, you know, they have to be able to to know that stuff, so otherwise they won't be hired. <laughs> you see, so improvisation is uh, important also within the class, you know, so. Usually, you know, I got my master's degree in jazz when I was in the States, too. So I was able to learn, you know, how to um, uh, kind of like teach some of the jazz techniques and stuff like that. So I usually make a um, combination. So when I'm doing like scales, I try to teach them through the circle of fits and, and do some patterns. So when they learn the technique, it's just not for classical saxophone, it's for both. So I do a combination of how to use the scales and how to, you learn the degrees and the, the chords. So you're playing with the sevens and eights and things like that. And I, um, I encourage them a lot to use the, the pentatonic scales, the um, uh, diminished scales, the whole tone scales. Because a lot of the repertoire that we play, you know, they have all this 20th century music in our language. So, and that's also using jazz. So when I teach them, I try to have them understand that that's just music and the way you kind of like, like use that in a, in a, like a jazz standard. You also is something you can apply when you play classical because some of that scales are the same. <laughs> I mean, a diminished scale, you know, you can find it in a concerto, a chromatic scale and a concerto as well as you can use it for improvisation. So I try to have them understand that it's just music, you know. So it doesn't mean that that if you learn how to use the pentatonic scale or the blues scale, it's just going to be in jazz. No, also you have to be able to analyze and find that kind of thing that sometimes composers use in their music. And so it's like, you know, there's... Uh, some stuff that, that you find the Tomasi concerto, that there's a lot of chromatic stuff. And, and, and I tell them, you know, you were practicing this here too. So if you see, you know, you already play that. It's just a way, there, a way of recognizing, okay, what kind of like scale, what kind of like arpeggio you're using. And you probably practice that through the circle of fits when you were just doing the routine, you know. Now, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Yeah. All right. So here, here we go. <clears throat> so if you just had one piece of music that you could play, what would that be? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many, so much music. But if I have just one piece, I think that just for myself, just I'll do the Dubois Concerto because that's like the piece that introduced me to all this world. That was like the first piece I, I learned and I enjoyed and I kind of like brings me a lot of nice memories, especially when, when, when Doc True. So when I was able to study finally with a person that I admire. So I think through that, you know, when I play, I enjoy it a lot because it's, it's just like a, uh, it's like a sample of something that, that I 
wish I wanted to do. And, and through that piece, I was able to, to do that. So you've got one hour to practice. How would you spend that hour? The hour of practicing? I like playing scales, but in different ways and different rhythms. So I, I usually like, like to sometimes practice the scales, doing some bossa nova or salsa rhythms. And so we get like really like like a really steady and straight beat, and um, and later you know I think that I will just play like a, I like to sometimes just play melodies like but just compose whatever comes to my mind with long tones and go up and down go up and down going around, and also uh, maybe that in that hour I probably do like really fast. Uh, Arpeggios like just for for the hell of it. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone? Well, in my case, uh, I will consider. I mean, it's not fair because there are too many people that somebody who I admire, Doctor Rousseau, of course. You know, uh, because of the why the the reasons is that he was able to to put the saxophone in places that the saxophone were not before, like with the gramophone recording. And and uh, he was able to be in like in juries that were just for like the regular instrument that never thought a saxophone as a serious instrument to be like the Mozart town uh, competition and all that kind of stuff. If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> because that's the only way that you will test yourself. So I don't think that you have to do mistakes voluntarily. You know? <laughs> but if you made a mistake and you didn't mean to do that, you need to analyze why. So that's why you kind of like improve what you want to do. What's the most important thing that you can do before you have a performance? I think it's just to be aware that what you want to do is something that you're going to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy what you're going to do, I think you're wasting your time because <laughs> you're punishing yourself. You get like, like, you know, nervous and stuff like, that. I mean, it's okay to get nervous. And stuff, but if you feel not comfortable and you are, are, are taking the experience, you're going to uh, do a something negative. I think that that's not right. <laughs> what advice would you give to yourself looking back what you've learned now? I will tell my, myself, especially me, <laughs> to, to sometimes not be too uptight, you know, to be patient, to think twice and sometimes don't do things by reaction, like really fast, you know, just to... Because sometimes one of the problems I get into is because uh, something comes and I, and I, my way of doing things are very fast and like do it and now. And, and sometimes I think that um, my advice to myself is just take it easy, just breathe, think about it twice and do it. But sometimes I think that if you, do it, you think it twice, you probably won't do what you do. <laughs> so, but you know, just to be a little more uh, relaxed in some of the things because that's, 
some of the the going back to all these shares, you know, especially now that I'm growing up and I'm getting a little older, I can see how I, I used to react when I was younger and sometimes didn't think about consequences. I just did it. And um, but on the other hand, I said, well, if, it ha if I hadn't done it like that, probably it wouldn't happen. You know, yeah. is there something we should be doing that lets us have a long, healthy career? <sighs> yes. Uh, and many people think that it's not important, but exercise, like part of your life, is good. But before you do exercise, I think that you need to be very aware of how you breathe. I think the breathing and doing breathing exercises, not as a musician, like, you know, but be aware. Because every time you tell somebody breathing, they're like, oh. <laughs> and so, but I think that one of the first things you do when you are born is breathing and when the last thing you're going to do is dying is breathe so if you don't breathe correctly and you don't get all the oxygen and stuff like that uh even though if you exercise and you don't know it correctly it's not going to help you especially for for us that we would play with instruments we need air so i think that um being aware of how you breathe is something that uh, it's going to help you a lot. And the advice I give people now, uh, <clears throat> once I got to exercise regularly, like a part of the routine, you don't have to be worried about like allergies and all these kind of diseases that sometimes like players get because they're always like practicing and doing all this stuff. And, and so, oh, my, my shoulder, oh, my leg, oh, I get sick all the time. And it's just because they lack exercise. So if you do exercise, I think um, a lot of things are going to be improved. What are some of the changes that you've seen in the saxophone during your career? And also, what are some of the things that haven't changed that perhaps has surprised you? Yeah. It depends on where you are, but I think that um, um, back in the 90s, 80s, when the schools were starting, there was a big division between saxophone, um, between the classical saxophone and the uh, what they call the jazz saxophone player. But through the years now, you see more and more students and people who graduate who are combining both. So there's not the... the um, that's one of the things I've, I've seen that it changed. And that's because some of the teachers that are teaching now, they can do both. I mean, they can explore. Obviously, some of them are going to be more involved with one of those, but at least they can teach both. And, um, and uh, I think the repertoire has increased. There was a point where you just got some the same music, the same music, the same music, the same music. But I think that now, I mean, there is a, a little more interaction and connection with composers who are helping to develop new repertoire, new styles of music. And um, basically, one of the things that probably haven't changed that much is just that saxophone itself, you know, like even though there are like like new developments in the instrument, you know, this, the saxophone keeps the same keys and things like that, you know, you know something that you have like... Uh, you have to learn uh, like a new way of, of doing stuff. So I think that that's basically it. So is there a recent project you've been working on that you'd like to tell us about? 
Yeah, I'm 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 finishing a CD. Well, no CD, but a recording because now <laughs> nobody is a CD of some Costa Ricans um, music repertoire for saxophone that I have some chamber music with other things. So I'm in the process of, of finishing that, and also I just realized in the last four uh, months that I have like by the end of July I I will have like four saxophone concertos that I have recorded with orchestra. So I think that I'm gonna release another production with just that because there are uh, four saxophone concertos by Costa Rican composers that uh, that were written and they had not been recorded before. And I have had recorded them lively and lately. So I think by the by July when I finish the last concerto I have to play, I probably do that. So I probably have two uh, this year, two different uh, productions that I have. And with Sun Sax, uh, we are finishing another C, another music uh, recording that we're doing. So probably by December, we have uh, something coming up too. Has recording been an important part of your development? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think especially I do a lot of live recordings. Yeah, so it's been part of um, what I do. And um, especially now that I have all these composers, uh, I'm trying to organize uh, what, uh, a lot of the things that are written so I can start documenting you know, all that music. So where can people find more about you? Um, well, I have my Facebook, mm -hmm. Javier Valerio. When your phone is on? Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And also, uh, there is a website, JavierValeri.com, where, where, where there's my contact and there are some stuff. Uh, right now, it's in construction, so you, you, it's there, but you're going to get eventually more stuff right. through that, too. So, you've made an incredible contribution to the saxophone. What's next for you? Well, I don't know if I have made like a very big contribution, but I think, uh, as I told you... Um, there is a lot of work to do in Latin America. So I really want to continue uh, working even more and more with, uh, along with the colleagues in the Latin American Saxophone Alliance to get to all those countries and places where the saxophone needs to be developed even more. So I, I see myself that in the next years I'm going to be going through all these places and traveling more, um, being able to have all those people learning about all the legend and the, the history of the saxophone. But at the same time, through those people, going to the World Saxophone Congresses and go to all those places that had saxophone for many years as a tradition to learn more about those countries who are just starting to create things for saxophone too. Great. So thanks for your time. You're welcome. And let's get some coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sure. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are available at barrysax.com. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on The Barry Sachs Show. <laughs>